0: All right. Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving uh, or Thanksgiving week or weekend, Uh, and it's good to be back here at church on this Sunday. We've got an interesting passage, don't we? (laughs) Uh, This has been a passage uh, that has been, I guess, interpreted or looked at from many different angles and uh, there have been a lot of different opinions regarding the, the character of Christ and maybe what was he doing here and what was he thinking. And so we're going to spend a few minutes unpacking uh, the whole fig tree incident. What, if any, lessons there are with the fig tree. Does that relate to the, the, the clearing of the temple? And what, what, is, what is this message for us today who are not part of uh, the, the temple life um, in, in Jesus' time. So there's quite a bit to unpack. Uh, there is an outline that can help you in the bulletin, and let's just jump right into it, all right? Here we go. Uh, look, if this happened in the time of Twitter, all right, there would certainly be plenty of responses, and modern historical commentators have all chimed in and here are some of the thoughts on what Jesus did as he cursed the fig tree. Joseph Kloster would have probably tweeted, but he wrote this, a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong. All right. We actually have it. We could, you know, uh, it's somewhere in there. Let's shoot it up. A gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong. T.W. Manson I think makes a great point and maybe this is something you're thinking too. A tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill-temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. And as it stands it is simply incredible. Barkley The story does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems to be a petulance in it. Bertrand Russell, a famous and well-known atheist philosopher says this, after hearing or reading about it, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. So he got a lot of negative feedback, all right? Got a lot of hate. And if, if there was Twitter back then and this got out, who knows how much hate he would have gotten for cursing uh, the precious fig tree. So why is this story in the Gospel of Mark? Why did Mark record it? Why is the telling of this story split? And you have this sort of, uh, you know, Seemingly unrelated story of the temple and the cleansing or clearing of the temple uh, uh, In between The the what happened and the withering of it. All right, here we go Mark commonly uses something that we call the sandwich Structure, All right and it's very it's think of a sandwich You got two loaves of bread and you have whatever it is you like to put in between the sandwich, right? Uh, that's what we have here. It's the ABA structure. A, he talks about the fig tree. B, he talks about the temple. A, he goes back and talks about the fig tree. Whenever Mark uses the ABA or the sandwich structure, he's trying to take two things that maybe would seem unrelated to us, but his whole point is that it's about something related. That it's about something uh, together or it's, it's the same teaching. So when we look at this story and the way that Mark tells us this story and the happenings on those couple of days, what we begin to see and realize, all right, is that the fig tree, as it surrounds the story of the temple, Jesus uses the fig tree, how it was without fruit, how he curses it, how it eventually withers away, uh, in fact, the next day. And, he, and, and, and that story surrounds what happens in the temple. That fig tree then is going to be a lesson for his disciples. It's going to be like an object lesson. If you're a teacher in here, you know, you're, sometimes you, you, you need to use something Else to illustrate, to help the, the child understand. And here Jesus is using the fig tree as almost a living parable, right? As to what's happening in the temple. Well, on the day that Jesus shows up at the fig tree, It's the day after his triumphal entry. We we just sang that song, Hosanna to the Highest, right? So there was, at the beginning of chapter 11, he comes into Jerusalem and there's the, the Hosanna to the Highest. There's this amazing entry. Him and his disciples leave that evening and then they come back. And as they're entering back into the city, Jesus is described as being hungry. Verse 12. As he's hungry, he sees in the distance a fig tree that's described as being in leaf. All right? This fig tree is in leaf, but it's also described later in that verse as uh, not in the right time of uh, of fig season. All right? Everyone here knows or has had figs. Fig newtons, fig jam, straight figs. Very sweet, delicious. It's an amazing uh, fruit, I, I can't get enough of figs. When a fig tree is described as being in leaf, it's because it's during the off-season, and so it doesn't have what we would commonly think of as figs on it. However, as this is springtime, there would be these much smaller, much greener, much less tasty. all right, Little fruits, almost like nub-like green fruits on them. They, they actually have a name for them. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but P-A-G-G-I-M. Go for it, right? And, and a lot of commentators have talked about how f- if you were a hungry, hungry traveler, if you noticed a fig tree with leaves, that it would be a sign to you. Oh, okay, at least I can go for these uh, P-U-G-G-I-M's. All right, and, and kind of, you know, satisfy the hunger a little bit. And this is what Jesus does, but he approaches the tree... And there's nothing on it and he can't find any fruit he can't find anything on it and he curses it and when he curses it it's not like he's saying a bunch of curse words like beep beep you know beep beep it's he says simply may no one ever eat fruit from you again that's the curse okay may no one ever eat fruit from you again his disciples hear this now i can understand why that sounds very petty not God-like, not Lord or Master-like, not like the creator of the universe-like. This really seems out of character from the Jesus who calmed the storms, right, on the boat, uh, from the Jesus who uh, performed amazing miracles of healing. It just sounds so out of character. So I could understand why to some, we, we wonder what's going on here. Was he that hungry? Was he that upset at the tree, <laughs> right? Like, man, all right. Let's look at the temple story, because I think the temple story will help explain what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples through the fig tree. He comes to the temple in Jerusalem. At this point of history, uh, the, the temple was immense in, in a way, Okay. Every year you have uh, the Passover celebration, and that's the time of the year we're in right now. It's the Passover celebration. So during the time of Passover, everyone would have to pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem, to the city, to the temple. So it's estimated that the city would swell to 10 times, 10 times its normal population. Can you imagine your hometown? I don't know, you know, Brea, Yorba, Placentia, Fullerton, wherever it is you live. Swelling once a year to ten times its normal population. The traffic, the noise, the the people on the streets. You can't find space anywhere in the inns. People's homes are being packed in with friends and family. Everyone's trying to find a place to stay. It is a mess. And that's what's going on right here. Now, the reason why you would come at this time to the temple is because you would come and you would, you would bring a sacrifice. That was what, what, what you would do into the, the temple courts. And you had a couple of options. You could try to bring one from outside from your house or wherever you're journeying from or from closer. And you would hope it's unblemished and perfect, that it would pass temple code and standards and that it would get stamp of approval. Then you're good to go and you can offer up that sacrifice. You're good. Or the option would be to make the journey a little bit easier, all right? You forget bringing the animal with you. You show up at the temple and in the outermost court area, the court of the Gentiles, you could find whoever you wanted to find. There was a bunch of guys selling animals and they were all temple sanctioned, temple certified, temple approved. You didn't have to worry about it getting rejected it would pass, and you could just buy it there. However, the downside to buying it at the temple was that it was estimated that it would be marked up up to 16 times the normal cost. See, this is where my wife and I would get into an argument. I would be like, no, 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 we gotta save our money. Let's buy it and like bubble wrap it, make sure nothing happens to it, and we can do this. We can get it safely there. It will pass for sure, honey. We just got to find the right animal. And my wife would be like, that's crazy. What if it doesn't pass? Are you going to, after all that trouble, let's just, let's just eat the cost. and Let's just, you know what, make our lives easy. And we would get into a big argument. I don't know about you guys. Of course, I would lose. But not only were they selling the sacrificial animals at up to 16 times the normal cost, you weren't allowed to bring your own money. You couldn't bring unrecognized currency, foreign currency. You couldn't bring something that was working every other day of the year, but it wouldn't work on Passover at the temple. You had to exchange your money there. And guess what? Again, they would get you. They would get you twice. It would be like going to a Dodger game and buying a Happy Meal that's normally $10, paying $160 for it, and then saying, no, we don't take U.S. dollars. We only take Dodger dollars. And here's the exchange rate. And it being an exorbitant rate, so you first have to exchange it into that, and then you can go buy your $160 dollar, dodger meal it's not really like that folks but it's an example like it like an illustration so you can imagine the situation for a lot of Gentiles as they're coming in to the city during this time of the year I, I know for myself I would I would be in a foul mood from the beginning of this journey knowing what was waiting for me when I arrived at the temple and Jesus enters into this temple, and right away, the picture of him is not peaceful, it's not calm, right? What does he do? He, he overturns the tables of the money changers. So the, the people who were uh, charging exorbitant exchange rates, he overturns those tables. He overturns the seats of those who sold pigeons. The pigeons were the, 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 the cheapest right, animal you could buy. For an offering, so it was often the the sacrifice of the poor, or you know, and. You have this right there, and, he, and he's kind of causing this upheaval. I, it's hard for me to imagine exactly the scene. I read one commentary, the, the Pillar Commentary, which says, the, which estimates that the outer court where this is taking place is like 35 acres large. So it's not like just some small little backyardish looking thing. It's a huge place with many people and many money changers and many... Ta- so I'm not sure what it must have been like and what the commotion must have been like. But there was enough of this going on that the reaction to this, right, is he now gets everyone's attention and he begins to teach them saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And right away, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes who no doubt were the ones who probably were benefiting the most from this outrageously shameful marketplace. They recognize what Jesus is saying right away. They hear it and they seek for a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Because not only did they understand what he was saying, but the crowds were astonished at what he was saying. So they probably had some kind of understanding, some kind of uh, affinity to what Christ is doing and teaching. It was almost like, finally, I've been coming every year and paying all this money for this. Finally, someone is making some sense here. Den of robbers, that's Right. And when evening came, they go back out. Now clearly, the situation in the temple I think at this point is is much easier to understand. The temple was supposed to be a place of hope. It was picked and established by God to where he would grace it with his presence. It was the place where people would come and pilgrimage to remember the faithfulness and the deliverance of his people during the Passover. If you remember back at the time of the 10 plagues, what happened on the last plague, and how God passed over, or the angel of death passed over the homes because of the sacrifice of the lambs, and God spared his children and his people, and here was a, a, a whole Celebration and festival, a time of remembrance and honoring God for that Passover and salvation and deliverance. But even when it wasn't Passover, the temple was where, you know what, you come to meet God, you, you come to worship God, you come to sing his praises, you come to pray, and it was supposed to be a light to the world. A light to the world. But the problem was that in the midst of how immense this temple had become, it only had the appearance. It only had the appearance of righteousness. From the outside, it looked exactly like it was supposed to look. It looked like a place where you could come and buy your animal to sacrifice to God so you could recognize and honor him. And it looked like that's what was going on. It looked like they cared for the Gentiles. They even created a court specifically for the Gentiles. But that was the only part of the temple they were allowed to be in. They weren't allowed to get closer to the Holy of Holies. And in fact, at that time, the people thought that the Messiah would come to cleanse the temple of the Gentiles of aliens and of foreigners. And that's why Jesus quotes Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. And he says, look, remember, my house was supposed to be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Mark is the only one who includes that phrase, for all the nations. Instead, you have made it, turned it to a den of robbers. You see, the problem of the temple was that at that time, in this place of history, it had somehow lost its way. It no longer was fulfilling its true purpose. It had become an illusion. And although it looked like it was doing everything great and fine, the substance was missing. It had become something else entirely. And that was the lesson of the fig tree, it had the appearance that it could satisfy, that it could help, that it could help you in your time of hunger. It had the leaves, but it didn't have the fruit. It was fruitless. It is commonly referred to as a lesson regarding hypocrisy. Promising one thing, having the appearance of one thing, but having no substance no true fruit. R.C. Sproul he writes about how uh, his good friend, close friend and colleague Archie Parrish who uh, for a while led uh, a ministry called Evangelism Explosion where they would just go out and and really try to to share the gospel with with non-Christians and what they did was they kept a record of all the responses that people made. All the objections that people had to the gospel to Christ and to the church. And Dr. Parrish shared with R.C. Sprawl that how one of the things that came up over and over and over again was that those outside of the church felt that the church was full of hypocrites people who appeared righteous but lacked the substance of righteousness. Now, of course, we know that there's no such thing as a perfect church. If there was a perfect church and you're looking for the per- perfect church, the minute you enter into that church, it's no longer a perfect church. It becomes hypocritical once again. That was often the answer that we gave to people who, who claim that the church is full of hypocrites. We're like, well, of course. As you expect, we're all sinners, and Jesus came for sinners. But in this time, Mark 11, and what's recorded for us here, what we have is something I think that goes beyond what we're we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the role of the temple, the light of the world, and what it had become. And Christ was not happy with it. And he cursed it. And he even had to use a fig tree. If you want to call it innocent, I don't care. Innocent, guilty, whatever the case was. Christ had a very purposeful lesson he was giving to his disciples. And the very next day, the disciples noticed what? In verse uh, 21. It had withered. It had died within a day. Jesus said a few words to it, was unhappy with it, and it came back. You came you came back the next day, and what do you see? A dead tree. And I don't know, maybe maybe Peter was so astonished. Wow, the tree just died overnight. Right? It's gone. And what does Jesus say? Well, if you look at the following verses, and it's not in your bulletin, but it is in your outline, and it is up here on the screens, all right? If you pull out your outline, you'll see Jesus' response to that sort of maybe surprise and astonishment, right? Verse 21, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Verse 22, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God, all right? Now, I think, unfortunately, this passage has been misinterpreted and misused quite a bit. Is Jesus really saying to us and to his disciples, look, your problem is that you have doubt. Like, if you would just pray with more belief, more trust, whatever you ask will come true. It doesn't matter what you're asking for. You just have to name it and claim it. You have to make it yours. You have to believe it. You have to hold on to it with everything you have, and it will come to pass. God will answer your prayers. God will hear you. Believe it before you pray it. All right, let's think really carefully, all right, about what Jesus is saying here and the context of when Jesus says this. Because his response and what he says here, it's directly after the the astonishment over the withered fig tree, which was an object lesson, a living parable, a reminder of what had happened in the temple, that there was this illusion of righteousness, but it had become something else. There was nothing there. It was unfruitful, and there was judgment and a curse that was the result of that. I think what Christ is clearly teaching his disciples and us is here are the things that my temple should have been filled with. Number one, faith in God. Not faith in yourselves, not faith in your laws, not faith in your religious actions, not faith in all of these things. Now, I'm not trying to belittle religious actions, but at that time, Temple life had become such a set of human and man-made rules that you had to keep, you had to follow, you had to get the sanction of the temple to even make your sacrifice. And it had become a very corrupt system. It was a a broken system. And Jesus is saying, we can't put your faith in human things. If you want to be saved, if you want to be delivered, if you want to have hope, you have to put it in. God, amen? God is the only thing that is faithful. God is the only person who will never disappoint. God is the only one who will always keep his promises. And because we ought to have faith in God, we can have a faith that believes in big things, in the impossible, in the immovable. And maybe he's trying to show his disciples Look, you might think that this whole system is broken, and the temple is broken, and it's cursed, and it's withered. If this is the case, then how can we be saved? <laughs> it's possible with God. If you have faith in God, it's possible. Maybe for you and I today, we, we, we really identify with sort of the picture that's being drawn here by Mark. Mark. Maybe we find similarities in our own life. We realize, you know what? Maybe we've been going for the appearance of righteousness. But the thoughts, the heart, the things that exist day to day, maybe it doesn't match up. And so we relate. And then when we come to church or when we read the Bible and we hear all of these things and our heart is reminded of what we ought to be doing and how we ought to be, and there's this almost feeling of impossibility. How can we become like this? How can we become more Christ-like? How can we be people that God would be proud of? How can we be fruitful Christians? How can we be a fruitful church? And it seems impossible, but Christ is reminding us and the church and his disciples have faith in God. Amen? Faith in God. John 15, Jesus makes it very clear. Verses 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then as we have this faith in Christ, he says, you've got to pray. Pray. But here's maybe where we start to have questions because it sounds like Christ is saying, as long as you have that faith that anything is possible, God will give it to you, God will answer it. But I think what Christ is saying here comes after this reminder. What are we supposed to have faith in? God. Not in ourselves, not the philosophies of this world, not in secularism, not in pleasure, not in power. Not in all of these other things, but faith in God. And you see, that qualifier is so important because what it tells us then is what our prayers should be about. When we have faith in God, how should we pray? When we have faith in God, what should be our approach? And here's the illustration I'll use. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's about to approach the terror and the horror and the agony of the cross? He's in the garden, and we see a side of him that maybe is a little bit more surprising than even him cursing out a fig tree that's without fruit. He's in agony. And in that moment of agony, he cries out to the Father. Man, What does he say? My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. (laughs) What? If it's possible, let this cup be passed from me? It's like he's asking for God to remove this responsibility, this burden, this task this cup of suffering. But right away, what he says next is important because I think it clarifies his prayer. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. So his whole prayer, even as he's saying, let this cup be passed from me, is, Lord, just do your will. I will follow your will. if, If I put it into like our language, it would be like Jesus saying, man, remove this cup, but if you say no, awesome. I say yes. I'll say yes to the cup. I'll say yes to your will. I'll say yes to you. And this is the prayer of faith that Jesus is describing here for the church of Jesus Christ. God is not our servant. We are his. And finally, the third thing he mentions, which I think is super important, is he talks about forgiveness. Now, I don't know if some of you here are still upset about the tree. If you are, I know why. It's because you feel like there has been done some great injustice to the fig tree. But Mark is not describing an injustice to the fig tree. Mark is describing a great injustice done to the one person who did not deserve death or any kind of cursing or any kind of shame. The one who deserved only blessings and rewards and goodness was the one who was cursed on the cross. That's the injustice that Mark is talking about. But you see, it was only through that great injustice that we would receive forgiveness of our sins, what was deserving for us, what we had really earned and bought into and sold out for. Well, we didn't pay the penalty for it. Christ did. Not the fig tree. Jesus. And I think... For Jesus then, he's saying, look, that's how I forgave you. Church, you have to be ready to forgive others. In a way, this was a very difficult passage for me because it forced me to ask myself a lot of difficult questions. As a pastor... Am I only trying to give off the appearance of being good? The appearance of being righteous? Was there actual substance to my heart and to my life? And even when I'm struggling with that, though, you know, the reason why I'm Christian and the reason why I stand before you guys and I can do this is because I can still say, you know what? I can struggle with that because Christ didn't. He did it perfectly for me. And the gospel is that I'm saved because of him. Amen? That's why you guys are here today even though people can accuse Crossway of being hypocritical, even though people can accuse us of having just the appearance of goodness, Christ died for us. Amen. And he cursed the fig tree, but not us. Instead, he gave us life. The response then for us I think, is having faith in him. Praying to him with that faith. Not my will, but your will be done. And forgiving each other. Amen? Look, the reason we do all the be generous and all of these things is not so we can do something religious or something good and feel better about who we are. We have to do things so that we don't become a hypocritical church, a church of illusion. We have to be the light to the world, amen? Amen? We have to. That's our calling, you guys. We have to figure out how to do this. You and I together. Because I have some of the same struggles you guys have. Pastor Steve has some of the same struggles you guys have. We're all trying to do this together. All right, let's pray. Dear Holy Father, we thank you for uh, the lesson of the fig tree. I wonder if some have misunderstood what you were trying to do that day. Um, But it's a hard lesson, Lord. It's not something we like hearing all the time. And it's, but at the same time, it also gives us an opportunity to be grateful because we know it's not how well we do things it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what you did for us and it encourages us and our response well it's lacking but we're encouraged by the fact that you are patient with us we trust that you will finish what you began in us and we know it's going to all happen according to your plan so once again we ask for your mercy your forgiveness we ask for your continued patience and we ask for your help for your strength We want to abide in you and you in us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.